This is Warner Lewis, and welcome to another edition of Lewis at Large, smart talk and conversation with talented people from all walks of life. A reminder to subscribe to these Lewis at Large podcasts, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. And if you like the podcast, hey, let others know about it. For context, my conversation with Paul Sexton was held in July 2021. Well, to the business at hand, uh, my guest, uh, extremely pleased to have him here. He has not been with us before. And amazingly, we have not talked about this subject before. His name is Paul Sexton. He is a very well-known British music journalist and broadcaster. Been around uh, in the business for several decades, uh, doing a variety of writing. You have seen his contributions in Billboard, Music Week, and the Sunday Times. He also wrote and produced the acclaimed BBC Radio 2 documentary, Prince and Me. He lives in South London. Good for him. This is his first work. It is called Prince, a portrait of the artist in memories and memorabilia. Paul Sexton, how are you, my friend? Hey, Warner, I'm very good, and thanks for the introduction. You can be my publicist anytime. All right. Well, wonderful. Let's do this. Uh, let's. Uh, I know that uh, we have had several conversations uh, over the years on this show about the music industry and music journalists, but I would like to know, uh, you are, because uh, you're in Europe, uh, I know you've covered things in the States, obviously, but share with our Lewis at Large listeners, if you would, the path that took you to specifically music journalism. Well, um, I think it's fair to say that I got lucky quite early on, Warner. Um, it, writing was something that always interested me. You know, languages was kind of my thing. Um, and the mu- music was very much my other thing. Um, it seems, when you talk to other people and make these comparisons in later life, it seems that I started pretty early. I bought my first single when I was eight years old, uh, which, before you asked me, was Hey Jude by the Beatles. Um, and I, I guess by the time I was about 11, I was reading the weekly music press in the UK, which was, was quite a big and powerful thing in those days. Um, we, had, we had four weekly music titles in the UK, um, and I started reading one of those when I was probably 11 years old. And um, if you skip forward to when I was 17, um, that very paper, which was called Record Mirror, ran an ad for freelance writers. And I was still at school. Uh, but I applied to it anyway, and uh, to my complete astonishment, I got a reply from them saying, um, please get in touch with the editor's secretary. So I got a gig quite early on, uh, cover reporter, <laughs> uh, to cover a gig, and um, it kind of all went from there. And all these decades later, I'm not really doing anything that's so terribly different from that because it is my passion, and uh, it just expanded from there into you know, the national music press or the national uh, newspapers press, I should say, as well. Um, UK and international radio work and um, a lot of different stuff. You know, I've always been freelance, so it's a pretty broad broad beat, you know. Uh, but that's sort, of, that's sort of the way I like it. Yeah, you mentioned that the that the British music press was was a strong and powerful force. I'm curious as to the dynamics of it. Was it a strong and powerful force? because of the incredible strength and force of the British uh, acts, obviously the British invasion and related acts, or was that strong music press already in place? I think it was already in place. It's, it's interesting. At the point where I came into it, actually, when you, when you think back, it was a, it was a strong 
period for British music. I mean, we're talking really about the punk era, you know, certainly new, new wave time. Um, so, yes, there was a resurgence of interest in, in British music, but um, I think the other key thing to mention about the, the music press, which is very hard for anybody now to, to grasp, and this is probably true of press in general, is that, you know, in those days, we're talking about a time long before the national newspaper press carried any kind of music coverage on a regular basis. You know, in much later years, you'd see gossip columns and pop columns in all of the national tabloid press, certainly. Um, but in those days, the music papers were really the only way that a music fan could find out what was going on in, in the business. And, you know, if you go back even further than that, to the 60s, and I've seen this coverage for myself, you know, if you look at something like the NME, the Musical Express, um, they would be reporting the news of a new Beatles single, say, or band single, um, as news, first to be reported literally two weeks before the, the song came out. You know, you would see things like, you know, Beatles to release a new song called Paperback Writer or something like that. Um, and that's really the first that anyone would have heard of it. There was no, obviously there was no social media. There was no other way for it. There was no grapevine, really. There was no way for anybody not in the industry to find out about this stuff, uh, except by reading the, the, the weekly music press. So you're talking about, by the time I came along, um, the enemy was still going strong. Um, Melody Maker was somewhat in decline by then. There was a new, uh, a newer title called Sounds, which is doing well. And then Record Mirror, the one that I started on, was sort of the other one of the four, and by far the most pop-oriented of the four. Um, and the figure that I always trot out and tell people, which they think I'm making it up, is that in a country, you know, a relatively small-sized country, those four titles, between them, sold. I'm not talking about, you know, number, the readership, but the actual sales of those four titles was three-quarters of a million copies. Um, so in terms of eyeballs, as we would call it now, you know, that obviously would be in the millions. Wow. Well, let's, uh, again, one more question about the career, and then we'll let's start diving in towards the book. Paul, uh, as a writer, uh, were you primarily stationed, so to speak, uh, in the UK, or did you from time to time go out on tour, so to speak, or come over to the States or other areas around the world to cover various music events, tours, etc.? Yeah, I certainly did, and I feel very lucky in that respect, um, especially now. I mean, you know, as you can imagine, over the last uh, 15 and 18 months or so, you sort of think back to, to that time of, you know, extensive traveling, particularly to the States for me, and it, it feels like a different person. You know, that feels like that, that world, well, has certainly been on hold, and I'm not sure it's ever going to come back, really, not in full. Um, but no, I was very, very lucky in that respect. I mean, at, at one stage, I would have been traveling to the States a good, uh, at least half a dozen times a year to cover various things. A, a lot of the time, um, and this was the slightly less glamorous part of it. You know, you'd be you'd be going to say New York or LA or Nashville or you know Austin for South by Southwest or something like that. But you'd, in most cases, you'd be in and out in two days. So, you know, it's a lot of travel for one story. But nobody who was lucky enough to get that sort of work would be would be complaining about it. And uh, yeah, it did take me on to some pretty amazing places and seeing lots of artists' houses and um, the occasional tour with with certain bands and stuff for sure. Well, again, if you just joined us, yours truly, Warner Lewis from the Flight Deck, uh, Lewis at Large. Uh, got a good one going here with British uh, music journalist and broadcaster, well-known for many, many decades, Paul Sexton, and a brand-new work he has penned called Prince, a portrait of the artist in memories and memorabilia. Well, Paul, let's uh, let's uh, head towards the book here. First of all, uh, 
Prince, obviously, uh, very, very well-known, very, very talented, strong career in the studio and out. But what was it about Prince that attracted you to his story versus anyone else's? I think in this case, it was a question of um, uh, having the opportunity to talk to people who actually knew him, what I had. Um, it began as a radio project originally. This was uh, I, I've done a great deal of work over the years for BBC Radio Two, which is our big uh, one of our big national radio networks. And in fact, uh, it's the biggest, most listened to radio station in, in the whole of Europe. Um, and I've made, in addition to doing some presenting, you know, hosting shows for them, I've uh, also uh, produced and presented dozens, if not scores, of documentary shows. And this. What is now turned into the book actually had its first bit of life as the program that you mentioned called Prince and Me, uh, which was a show that I got to make uh, for the BBC about uh, Prince, not as a life story by any means, but through the eyes of um, you know, a number of people who knew him very well. So instead of what you might be more used to, to hearing as a radio documentary or as a, a, a print piece, you know, which would be a kind of a fan's eye view. This was really a friend's view of what this guy was like. And uh, in some cases, that was a question of winning the trust of, of some of these insiders uh, who knew him, because as is nearly always the case with any major artist, people who are close to them, especially if they're not around anymore, are naturally wary of people like me, because you know, they've been mistreated or misquoted or whatever it may be on many occasions in the past. So you have to put the work in to, to win them over. And in some cases, I had actually had the chance to do that in advance by other work that I'd done with them. Uh, one or two people that I interviewed for the book are people that I'd interviewed before for other things. So that was a good starting point. Um, the program became a two-hour doc, which is always good because you can dive deeper, of course, than you can in a one-hour show. And uh, it, it gave me the chance to do some extensive interviews with uh, with those people. And um, specifically what happened was that somebody from uh, the publishing company, Wellbeck, heard the program, uh, got in touch with me, proving, as always, that you never know who's there, you know, who's listening. And um, it kind of went from there. We developed the idea, and, you know, I did lots more work for it, of course, and new interviews and so on. Um, but what I've been stressing to people about the book is that it's, again, like the program, it's certainly not his life story, and it doesn't purport to be any kind of high, highbrow, um, you know, analysis, cultural contribution or anything. It's really just a, a themes from Prince's life, primarily through the eyes of people who were there when they happened. Right. He was such an extraordinary talent. He was, uh, again, incredibly talented with funk and R&B, but a phenomenal rock guitarist in his own right, a phenomenal vocalist and composer, but yet some of his greatest work, like you mentioned, uh, came in collaborative efforts. And I'm curious as to, was that something that, did he seek them out or was it the reverse? Good question. I mean, I think in some cases he, he developed some of the relationships that he had with people that were around before he was, you know, as famous as he became. Um, he was an interesting combination of somebody who always wanted to be in charge. You know, he was very much, uh, you know, a sort of out there on his own in that respect. But he also liked the band ethic. And that's a, that's a repeated trait that I've found in a lot of artists over the years. You know, even the great front men, you know, whether it's Mick Jagger or Roger Daltrey or any of those people, um, they, 
you know, they're, they're the visual representation of their bands for the most part, but they all enjoy the group ethic and the, you know, the sort of element of teamwork, I think, in, in that. So that's something that he developed from quite early on with, uh, you know, obviously there are a number of, of different lineups of his different bands, whether it was the Revolution or the New Power Generation. Um, and he was quite loyal to those people. You know, the, the, some of the people in the book, um, and we do talk a lot about the 80s, which I think a lot of people would still consider to be his real heyday, I suppose, um, are people who were around for quite a long time. There's, um, I was lucky enough to speak to, for example, to Susan Rogers, who was Prince's engineer um, on the kind of classic period of 1983 to 87. Um, and when I say engineer, she wasn't just with him in the studio day and night, but you know, on the road with him uh, as well. So uh, you know, she, probably more than anybody at that period, um, became a real confidant with him. But at the same time, you know, when, you, when I spoke to her, and I spoke to Susan on several occasions, and she was very generous enough to write the foreword for the book as well, um, you know, you, she talks about him with tremendous reverence um, and respect. But at the same time, you know, she knows that he was as flawed as the rest of us are, you know, so it's an interesting uh, dynamic. And um, it, also, one of the things I found repeatedly was that when you, we were asking people for whether they had any photographs of themselves with Prince. And for the most part, the answer to that question is no, because he wouldn't allow it. So Susan is somebody who worked with him right through all those amazing records, you know, Purple Rain and all the others, and she barely has an image of the two of them together because he, you know, you know, it's just not something he wanted them to do. So, you know, yes, he was a team player, but he was also pretty big on control. What, again, and I know you were talking to those that, that had worked with him or knew him from a variety of more adult relationships, but at the very mm. beginning, uh, any sense of, beyond expressing himself musically, did he want to be a pop star? Did he want to be a, a rock star, rather? Did he want to be a producer, or did he just want to do it and whatever, wherever the path took him, he would take? I think... That's quite an easy one to answer. I mean, he definitely wanted to be a star, you know, from, from very early on. I don't think he wanted to be a sideman. I don't think, I mean, he certainly wanted to produce his own records, which he did, you know, that was a, a, a very unusual thing that the, the deal that he did with Warner Brothers um, allowed him to be his own producer when he was still a teenager, which was absolutely unheard of. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, from, from everything he said at the time, and you see a lot of and I've, I've quoted quite a lot of the early interviews that he did, in the days when he still did interviews, of course, which he later on hardly did, did at all. But, you know, you see him talking to the local music press or the local press in, uh, in Minneapolis, for example, and uh, he is just in a hurry <laughs> to get on with it and, and become successful, you know. So that really was always the thing that drove him. But, but then this incredible work ethic kicks in. Um, you know, it, you know, to a, 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 just a manic extent, really, and that's something that was with him for the whole of his life. Obviously, he he demanded a great deal of the people that worked with him because he demanded a great deal of himself. And um, I think it's fair to say that that really is what did it for him. You know, that that's what really set him apart, especially in those early years from other artists, was just this completely steely-eyed determination to, to make it and to do to put in every single last minute that that would take. Right. You know, so that, uh, that, that's what set him apart, I think. A lot of people say the same thing about Paul McCartney, that other Beatles would be lying mm. in a hammock and McCartney would say, get up, get up, we have work to do. Um, 
You yeah, know, uh, that's right. So, uh, so as as it comes to Prince, an interesting dichotomy. Why, which I understand and, and certainly believe you that he wanted to be a star. He certainly wanted the world, so to speak, in many ways to revolve around him. And yet, at the same time, you sensed anyway, uh, maybe that he also sort of wanted to keep his distance from fans yeah. and others at a time. Sort of an interesting dichotomy, wasn't it? It, that's right. It is, uh, and I think he is, you know, was in a, in a era again. It's one of those things that's harder to understand now. You know, in a era that's so, you know, obsessed with social media, and I think that has changed the nature of um, the relationship between artists and their fans because, you know, fans have never been so close to their to their heroes as they are now, and they hear from them on a minute by minute basis about everything that they're doing in their life. The, the alternative to that, and I think probably the smarter thing, really, although it, it's from a different era, is to do what Prince did, and it's what Bowie did and a few others, which is to, to develop, uh, Michael Jackson has been another example, you know, to develop this kind of mystique around themselves by withdrawing at a certain point, um, not doing every last interview that is requested of you. And, um, you know, that, 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 that only works, of course, if you have the talent to back it up, and Prince certainly did. So, um, you know, I think that's one of the things that, that created this aura around him um, was just the fact that you you didn't, <laughs> didn't see him or hear from him all the time. And uh, I think it just left people wondering what was coming next. And, you know, that's the great thing is that there always was something coming soon, um, but it was something of substance, which was a record or a tour, right. not a photograph of their dinner on Instagram. <laughs> right. Hey, again, uh, Warner Lewis here from the flight deck of Lewis at Large. Uh, got a good one going here with Paul Sexton. Again, well-known uh, British music journalist and broadcaster. You've seen his work from the BBC, heard his work rather, and read it in Billboard Magazine, Music Week, BBC documentaries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But a new work called Prince, a portrait of the artist in memories and memorabilia. Uh, Paul, we don't want to do too many spoilers here, but share, if you would, a story uh, or two, whatever you're comfortable with, uh, from a particular artist or someone maybe the audience might know well, producer, etc., cetera, uh, about sure. and their contribution to the work. Of course. I mean, there's, there's some interesting little vignettes in there, and I hope that people will uh, will pick up on. Uh, you know, we may not be breaking any, any great sort of uh, secrets here. I mean, there are stories that have certainly been out there before, but, you know, in some cases, I hope that they're... they're nicely illustrated by the people concerned. Um, there's, for example, it, what we should say about the book is that it's, um, it, it has it, visually, you know, we wanted, to be, wanted it to be as striking as possible. So it does contain a lot of image, images that, uh, that you might not have seen of Prince before, and not just of him, uh, but, you know, his costumes, his guitars, lots of other ephemera. Um, one thing that comes to mind, for example, is a letter uh, which he wrote to the singer-songwriter Suzanne Vega, um, around the time that she had just released that remarkable song, Luca, very early in her uh, career, and uh, one of the first songs that really got her, got her noticed. Um, Prince wrote to her, basically just to tell her how much he loved the song, and we have that letter in the book. Um, and the, the background to that is that when he, it's a sad, sad story, but on the, uh, when he died, Suzanne found the letter. I think she she never lost it. She had it in her safekeeping, but she had another look at it when he died and did a social media post about it, and obviously that got a great deal of attention at the time because it was just a, you know, it's such a remarkably personal thing. Um, they didn't know each other. You know, he just 
wanted to let her know that this was, uh, I think his actual wording was something to the effect of it's the most, you know, striking song I've heard in years or something like that. Um, it's a single page uh, letter, handwritten. And of course, she cherished it forever. And um, I think, you know, what I like about that, that story and that, and that uh, letter is that it proves way beyond all of the glamour and the fame and, you know, incredible success and so on. Prince was a man of music and, you know, a great admirer of, of good work by other people. And um, that's a tremendously endearing thing, I think, because it, it just goes to the real root of what he was like and, and what motivated him, you know. Um, so if, uh, if he heard somebody, somebody else that he admired doing something good, he wanted them to know it. What, uh, you know, share with us a little bit here. Again, we don't want to spoil the book, but share some of the surroundings and the environment uh, and his mental state uh, just prior to his death. What, what you know, kind of we've, it's been told a bit, but from your perspective, what, what happened there and, and, and what, uh, again, to dial it back, what could have maybe been done differently? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those, uh, if only, or, you know, you can't help uh, analyzing it, can you? I mean, as I say, I, I'm, I'm anxious to, to stress that it's, this is not a, 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 the life story of Prince, and we don't go into a great deal of, uh, right. of depth about that particular point, because it's a celebration of his life and, you know, not, not a um, dwelling on, on his death. Having said that, you know, I did some interviews with people who knew him well and who, in one particular case, um, an artist who was in and around the whole Paisley Park era in the, in the 80s, um, who became known as St. Paul Peterson, um, uh, his, obviously his name is Paul Peterson, but he became known as St. Paul because of his geographical lo- location. Um, and he was a member of the group called The Family, who uh, did the first version, actually, of the famous Prince song, Nothing Compares to You, as covered by Sinead O'Connor. Um, a, a terrific band, really, really underrated. Only made one album for, for Paisley Park. Um, also included Susanna Melbourne, who was uh, very close to Prince at that time as well, who I also interviewed for the book. Um, Paul, we, who I've met on numerous occasions, lovely guy, very helpful, and keen to, to talk again um, in the wake of Prince's death about it. And at least here, there's a slightly uh, happy part to this, because they hadn't parted on the best of terms back in the day. Um, but in more recent times, they'd seen each other again. I think it, Prince came to a club show or something like that in, in Minneapolis. And, uh, you know, they had a great, a great time. They had a great conversation and sort of, I'm not going to say made things up, but, uh, you know, finished on a, on a high. Um, and, you know, then you talk to him about, about uh, Princess Death, and he's just as desperately sad as, as everybody else is. You know, Susanna and uh, Susan Rogers, who I mentioned, you know, it, it, even now, we're talking about five years on now, incredibly, already, since he died. Um, then this is true for me, too. You know, there's still a kind of element of disbelief about it. I found that before with certain artists that, that just leave us way too early. You never, I don't know that you ever fully process it. Um, you know, I can think of other artists from the UK who, in a funny way, you kind of still think they're there somehow. And right. I suppose it's because the music is always going to be there. Of course. Um, so yes, I think in his case, it was terribly sad because um, in, a, in a certain way, that very work ethic, which is the thing that I mentioned before, this obsessive professionalism that he had um, was kind of the thing that, it, that certainly, uh, you know, was, was part of, of how we lost him because he, uh, you know, directly to speak about his, his incredible performance stamina 
uh, where, as everyone knows, you know, he would do shows of three hours and then go on and do the after show for another, <laughs> probably another two, two and a half hours. Um, sometimes he would actually have done a, you know, a long sound check for the gig that night in the first place. Um, so, you know, you could easily be talking about somebody who was actually performing for, for maybe even eight hours out of a 24-hour period, which is just insane. You know, I can't think of anybody who's, who else has ever done that. But, you know, that, that, produced, that took its toll on his body. Um, and, uh, you know, it led to the, uh, to the use of painkillers, um, which, uh, you know, you can quite understand. And this is a guy who would be wearing, you think about his physical makeup, you know, a, not, not, a, not a tall guy, quite a, quite a uh, short in stature, um, wearing high heel shoes all the time, jumping about, you know, leaping around on stage, dancing like a maniac. Um, and, you know, that... As the body gets older, of course, that just develops aches and pains and, and beyond. And um, that at least is a, is, is a factor in, in what happened to him. It's just terribly sad and, you know, easy to say shouldn't have been allowed to happen. But it's, in a strange way, it's part of who he had been all the way through. Right. Over the course uh, of your career, you have had the opportunity to spend time with uh, the famous uh, and not so famous, probably from time to time, uh, learned a lot about what uh, particularly in, in this particular case, rock musicians have in common, where they're different and a lot of different stories. I'm curious, as from the body of work that you've done and all the writing that you've done, this particular work about Prince, the research that you did, the people that you talked to, and as you put it all together, what was maybe for you? either the biggest surprise or biggest revelation or strongest takeaway, so to speak, from this project that you just did? Well, I think one of the things about Prince that people might not realize, and again, it's a positive, is his very devilish sense of humor. Um, not something you necessarily think of, although I do, I, I don't know about you, but when I think of him, the picture that comes into my mind is of somebody with that, you know, that sort of impish look on his face and just the slight suggestion of a smile always. A kind of devilish, you know, look in his eye. And um, what I heard repeatedly from people was that, you know, that that was something that they, they knew and loved about him, um, coupled with a certain un unpredictability, uh, which would also, by the way, to go back to the work ethic idea, you know, that would involve calls in, literally in the middle of the night, um, Susan Rogers tells a story, Susanna Melbourne tells another, you know, where they would get a call at kind of, you know, two or three in the morning. There's one where Susanna says, um, the phone rings, she picks it up, and he's printed sprints, and he says, what are you doing? And she says, uh, sleeping? <laughs> and he says, I'm cutting, meaning I'm cutting a track, you know, at the studio. And he didn't even need to say, you need to be here. She just knew, you know, so, and the same thing with Susan. They would just abandon everything. There's one story where Susan was actually out on a date with a, with a guy, and, uh, you know, they'd been out for the evening, come, come home, and uh, then she got the call. And uh, <laughs> she kind of just had to make her apologies and go to the studio, and, and there, was there, I think, probably until the following afternoon, you know. So, um, so yeah, the work ethic thing was interesting, and, I mean, that's something that we've heard before, but it was interesting to, to hear some more detail of that. Um, and then there are some nice uh, stories. There's one in particular, which I won't uh, do the spoiler, but uh, Susan tells a story about, you know, what it was like being on tour with, uh, with Prince and, um, you know, how he would just play, play practical jokes on, uh, on the band a lot of the time, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a nice part of it because, 
it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that this is somebody who is just a you know sort of a uh, bit of a megalomaniac and and uh, <laughs> you know obsessed with, uh, with with work all the time. But there definitely was a playful side to Prince. That's uh, uh, something we tried to get through. Indeed. Well, the work, again, is called Prince, a portrait of the artist in memories and memorabilia by well-known British uh, music and rock journalist Paul Sexton. Paul, uh, before we get out of here, uh, number one, how can people pick up a copy of this thing? And also, uh, you've it's been such a prolific writer, uh, and you've got so much stuff out there. How can people find out more about the work that Paul Sexton has done? Well, that's very kind of you to ask. Well, in terms of the book, um, in the States, the publication date is the 7th of September uh, on uh, via Welbeck Publishing. Um, and if anyone would like to get in touch or, uh, you know, to, to maybe find out a little bit more, um, social media-wise, Twitter is uh, at psexton3. Um, and the Instagram address is uh, paulsextonwrites, as in being a writer. So that would be too... Uh, Two good ways, and um, yeah, I try. As far as social media posting is concerned, I try and keep it to music. You know, back to what I said near the beginning. Um, I'm not sure anybody needs to know about uh, you know what uh, what I had for breakfast or anything. But if, in terms of the one thing that I will give willing opinions about is music, uh, because I think it's for sharing. And um, you know, anybody that would like to uh, to be part of that would be uh, very welcome. Well, if you do a home improvement project, post some pictures out there for us, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that, in which case, that won't, probably won't be happening, as my wife will tell you. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> hey, listen, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Uh, interesting uh, subject matter, obviously, indeed. Hey, we'd love to have you back on again sometime. I'd love to come back, Warner. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us for this installment of Lewis at Large. We add new conversations every week, and we like hearing from you. You can contact us via email at warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. That's warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. And you can find out more at lewisatlarge.com or on the Lewis at Large Facebook page. And remember to subscribe to Lewis at Large. Check out Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. Now go have a great day.